Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. And I'm joined now by Dr. Tommy Keene, associate professor of New Testament and academic dean at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you as well. We also have joining us today uh, Mrs. Jennifer Patterson. You've heard her before when we interviewed her earlier in the year talking about public theology. She is the director of the Institute of Theology and Public Life here at RTS Washington. It is great to have you, Jennifer. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be joining the conversation. And we're going to have another special guest today. Um, that's Reverend Danny Olinger, uh, who is the author of a, a, a relatively recent biography on Gerhardus Voss. And we are thrilled to have him on to talk about the background, both biographical, historical, and really well, the personal background to the biblical, the great biblical theologian of the 20th century. Uh, Gerhardus Voss. But to start that conversation, I'm going to pass it over to Peter Lee to give us a fuller introduction of Reverend Olinger and uh, to just introduce this conversation. All righty. And Scott, thank you very much. And friends and, and as well as our uh, listeners out there, I, I'm genuinely excited to have our, our guest here today, uh, Danny Olinger. Danny is a, a, a dear friend. We've known each other for many years. Uh, we've, uh, he's in many ways, I feel, a kindred spirit and a certain affinity with him uh, because we have so many shared interests. Uh, Danny is a, an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That, that's a church that's not very well known, perhaps within uh, RTS circles, but it is a very uh, important historic American Presbyterian Church. He currently serves as the General Secretary of the OPC Committee to uh, Christian Education. He is also a frequent preacher at various different uh, Presbyterian churches, and is also uh, frequently a lecturer on Reformed theology at uh, various different conferences, as well as church settings. Uh, Danny also takes time to do some writing. And as, uh, as Scott mentioned, one of the uh, recent works that he published is a book on the life and theology of the great Dutch uh, biblical uh, theological scholar, uh, Gerhardus Voss. Uh, again, I, I have a, a, a real interest uh, with Danny uh, because uh, not only are we both ordained ministers in the OPC, but also both have a, a deep admiration uh, for the life and work um, of Gerhardus Voss. Uh, Voss has made a, an obvious impact on Danny, and, and he has definitely made a very uh, significant impact on me. If you've taken classes with me or just dialogue with me, you know that uh, I can't say much without oftentimes talking about Voss. Uh, Danny, uh, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am to have you with us. Uh, I'm so eager to be able to dialogue with you about Voss as well as the OPC. Oh, you're welcome, Peter. It's, it's quite a privilege. All righty. And, uh, you know, I know you have a lot to say about Voss. Uh, it's been a, a real love interest for you, and, and it's something that uh, uh, your recent biography has been such a huge contribution in our understanding of his life and theology. Before we get into Voss, though, I, I would like to hear a little bit about uh, uh, your interest in, in pastoral ministry 
how did the Lord lead you to that? And, and, and then how did he uh, lead you into the OPC of all places? Wow. I grew up in Eastern Ohio. I grew up uh, with my mother and my sister, did not grow up in the church. Uh, I gave myself to athletics. My sister, however, came to the Lord and was worshiping at a non-denominational Bible church that had a pastor that uh, had graduated from Cedarville College, the then Cedarville College in Western Ohio. And since uh, my sister and I, uh, being a part of a divorced home and uh, having to spend so much time together, I think she was pretty perceptive on regard to just being with me and the fact that as I was entertaining options for college, she uh, told her pastor, if a Christian school offered my brother a scholarship, he might think about it. <laughs> and that's what Cedarville College did. And uh, I did think about it, um, having given my heart to athletics in a very economically devastated place, a place that it was a community in which you did have a sense of place. And uh, it was a wonderful, I mean, I wouldn't trade growing up there, but you either fought to get out through athletics or some way like that, or you were consigned to working in the factory when the factories were still there and now, now they're gone. So Cedarville offered me an athletic scholarship and um, I accepted and went there, heard the gospel and uh, then got introduced to the reformed faith. And then it was one of those things where I was on a campus that was dispensational and Baptist and reformed and I was reformed. And so what do you do? You start reading books. You didn't have the internet back then and, and started to read about John Murray and Cornelius Van Til and Jay Gresson Machen. And uh, um, that was really my introduction to the reformed faith. And since they were all OP, I thought, well, I should learn about this Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, so that's sort of my pilgrimage towards uh, becoming Presbyterian and becoming OP. That's terrific. I actually had a, a similar um, appreciation for Machen. That's actually why I ended up OP as well. In fact, I actually tried, you know, I live here in Baltimore and tried to look it up. Yeah. Uh, some Machen heirs. That's right. Never found them. Uh, although I didn't really look that hard, I have to say. And that, that's, uh, that's terrific. Danny, uh, again, I, I really do want to get into Vos, but as you know, uh, we, we really, our community, our society had a rough, has had a rough past six months. And this has affected everybody, and no one is has not been affected by COVID and the uh, and the influences that uh, that is uh, that that has caused a lot of the racial unrest and a lot of division that's going on in there. I was wondering the OPC, uh, what what uh, has been going on roughly in the OP? If you can just share and in, in just kind of briefly uh, in light of all that's been going on. Yes, uh, our churches. We have about three hundred and thirty churches. 16 presbyteries. Our churches uh, have gone back to having in-person worship around uh, June and streaming. Almost everyone streams also, and uh, uh, we have been very thankful to do that, being very thankful to worship the Lord, which we believe is our purpose, and to preach the good news, and to preach the good news that, you know, where reconciliation is found, is found only in Christ. We have tried through our website, uh, opc.org, and also through the denominational magazine, New Horizons, 
to have articles that address the, the current unrest. And we have uh, tried to pick our spots and trying to help in that regard. Um, so it has been, uh, you know, what I have found in thinking about and trying to help and minister during uh, this time, there was a Dutch theologian, uh, S.G. de Graaf, in the 1930s wrote, uh, ended up in the 1940s publishing a series of uh, helpful teenage Bible lessons. And they were put together in a, a four-volume set called Promise and Deliverance. It's just wonderful to read. And in Promise and Deliverance, de Graaf talks about the difference between the covenant community and those who do not know the Lord. And he talks about the covenant community being those who are defined by faith and trusting in the Lord and giving themselves to the Lord. And he says that those who do not know the Lord are defined by fear. And, you know, I, I think that during this whole period of time, I've thought about that a lot in regard to those who rightfully are very fearful at this time, that we have a message that we can share, one of hope and one of comfort and one of peace and one of reconciliation and one of truth. And thinking in terms of how our church can serve others uh, who, again, if you do not know Christ as the Apostle Paul, if you do not, you know, with those who are without God or without hope. And I've, in my own lifetime, I've never felt that more than right now, that those who are without God or without hope and as the church, uh, that we have this message of hope for a world that desperately needs it at this time. Uh, absolutely true. Um, and it, I've had similar thoughts that uh, there's a time now for us to really focus on, on glory, on the kingdom, uh, and its uh, consummated uh, revelation as we await for that. And, and as you know, that, that is something that I've always appreciated about Voss. He so presses us always towards looking towards that end. I guess, uh, uh, Danny, what was your interest in Voss? How did you come across his, his material? And how did you become so enamored in his, in his work to, to do so much research? Because, I mean, when you read your, your biography, it's so impressive, the amount of work that you put in, the people you talked to, uh, the investigation that you did. Uh, when did that all begin? And, uh, and when did that uh, love for Voss really uh, begin to grab you? When I was at Cedarville College, I became a history major and was influenced by Dr. James McGoldrick, who really was influential in my life. Dr. McGoldrick ended up becoming a Presbyterian and for the last 20 years has taught at Greenville a Presbyterian Seminary in the church history department there. But after graduating from Cedarville, I, I thought, I'm a Presbyterian. I really want to go to a, a reformed seminary. I had a roommate who was from California, and he said, well, there's a new seminary in Escondido. Why don't we go out there? And uh, again, it's pre-internet, and there's nobody reformed in Ohio. <laughs> and so we're just like getting in the car and going out and going, and going there. And uh, so I went out, I went out there, and um, I did something really stupid. I wasn't thinking, but I was really excited to be in a reformed library. And I had this, uh, at the time in the 80s, uh, I, Dirt Poor, had this t-shirt, and it, it was a beer, a Spuds McKenzie t-shirt. And so I got thrown out of the library by the librarian, Jim Dennison. And he said, put a new t-shirt on and come back. And so I put this t-shirt on that was from a place where I grew up, or near, near where I grew up, a rival school. It was called Jewett Sio. 
And I walked back into the library with that Jewett Sio t-shirt on and he stopped me and he said, is that Jewett Ohio? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, uh, my grandfather was a United Presbyterian minister outside of Jewett Ohio for 20 years. And so suddenly I went from being really on <laughs> wondering if Jim would ever let me in his library again. So to, <laughs> to now he was, he wanted to talk to me and, uh, he was the one who introduced me to boss and um, really was so thankful for what uh, he introduced me and everything he showed me, but I was in love and uh, I wanted to go back and, and marry my now wife, Diane, and I had no money. And so I ended up dropping out of uh, the school to go back to marry her, but I really wanted to continue learning about boss and, he said to me, my brother is a pastor in Pittsburgh, and he is the best biblical theological pr preacher I've ever heard, but you can't tell him that. And if you want to learn about Foss, he is the person you need to go and learn from. And so it was Charlie Dennison, who was also the historian of the OPC, took me under his wing. And uh, that in itself was a story, uh, but in the decade of the 90s, Charlie really tutored me on Boss, and that enabled me then in regard to how to read Boss, what to read, introduced me to Dick Gaffin and Grace Mullen and all these other wonderful people who helped me in, in the journey. That's so terrific. I have to say, uh, and I'll let uh, my uh, uh, friends here be able to chime in with questions, but um, Jim Dennison was very much a guide for me as well in reading Boss. And my wife and Jim Dennison actually became real close. You know, you know, his big thing was cribbage. I don't know if he still played that way back in the day. And he used to clean house every day with people. He just, no one was able to compete with him except my wife. And so, so this, I don't know if he's ever going to hear this, but uh, he knows the truth. The truth is, is that he feared no one in that game except for my wife. Uh, and and uh, those were great times just sit on a plane and, and talk about theology and boss and, and things, uh, things like that. Danny, I'm, I'm curious, you know, having discovered Voss in seminary, what particularly attracted you to him? You said, you know, you said that this was just, this was just great stuff. You, you instantly fell in love with it. And, I, and for me, similar experience in college, you know, I just had a lot of questions. It might surprise our, our listeners to know that I'm kind of a nerd. And I had a, a lot of questions in high school about like theonomy and dispensationalism on the other side of things and the relationship between the Testaments and the Holy Spirit. And really, and I would ask my questions, but I never felt like I was getting a, a substantive answer until, until Voss, you know, and it kind of just started to open this new way of thinking about the testaments and revelation itself i i was just wondering what was the attraction to you kind of initially not so much now but how did you get into it well that's uh that is uh, very interesting uh in that there's some overlap uh with why my interest with with boss what you just expressed being at a dispensational school a lot of the reformed kids would go the other direction and become at the, in the 1980s theonomic and so the question was, well, is this what I should be? And, and so I started reading uh, John Murray. And in reading uh, Murray in the, uh, uh, his uh, great book, uh, the, it's the seventh chapter, The uh, Dynamic of the Spiritual Ethic and uh, Principles of Conduct. I had read that and, and I thought, wow, this is so great. 
and uh, and then I read the life of John Murray, and I see that he's indebted to this Dutch theologian Voss, and he's behind him. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay. So then questions of the the gifts of the Spirit. And someone says, well, read Perspectives on Pentecost by Dick Gaffin. And I read Perspectives on Pentecost, and I say, oh, Dick Gaffin's talking about this same guy, Voss. And then in regard to apologetics, and they say, well, you know, we got to read Van Til. And I read Van Til. And lo and behold, I read Van Til, and Van Til's talking about this guy, Voss. And, and so this is in college. And so I go out to Escondido and then finally had someone put it more comprehensively in terms of uh, revelation and redemption. That's really what Jim Dennison did and started to then put in the covenant. And so from these different angles, uh, I just, you know, the men that I'm really impressed with, uh, Murray, Gaffin, Van Til, they're all talking about Voss. And, uh, and so that was the initial entry in, into it. That's fascinating. We, I, I think back on my time at seminary, and I wasn't coming out of a dispensationalist background, but was coming out of you know, a, a reformed background that was heavily influenced by, of course, that, you know, that kind of wheelhouse of the reformed tradition, that it's systematic theology. And sitting down, I actually first read Grace and Glory in a class on sanctification. And those sermons you know, I, I realized this this individual is doing something different than what I've heard and read before. And then when I, by the time I got to biblical theology, it was kind of like, it was fine. It was like finding the book of the law in the temple. You know, it was like, oh, here it is. <laughs> okay. And it you know, set the, really set the framework in many ways for going into Old Testament later on in life. But it's also, it also cued me into a conversation that continues even today which is this conversation on the relationship between biblical and systematic theology. And I'd love to, as someone who's delved into the life of Voss, is, you know, um, I'd love to hear what were the things that were influencing him, the conversations that he's having in his time in this regard, in terms of how biblical and systematic theology relates. I know that he was very interested in connecting these two, not seeing biblical theologies as kind of its own thing off over here, but that it's influenced by systematic theology and engaged with that dialogue. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. He had the greatest friends, I think, that any person ever had as far as theologically. Mm -hmm. His best friend in the 19th century was Herman Bovic. His best friend in the 20th century was B.B. Warfield. <laughs> think about that in, return, in regard wow. to systematic theology. Um, in that uh, you're probably, uh, with Bovink, the greatest Dutch systematician, and with Warfield, he's in the discussion. Now, think in terms then, underneath those two, in regard to the, the, the other men then that were his students or uh, pupils or those who were indebted to him, in that Louis Burkhoff was a student of Voss, totally indebted to Voss. John Murray was a student of Voss and totally indebted to Voss. And Cornelius Van Til was a student of Voss and, and devoted. So take the fact that I have all five of their systematic theologies on my shelves in that in regard to you have those who wrote books 
like uh, Bobink and Burkhoff and Van Til wrote systematics, which were so valuable even today. Warfield and Murray, it's more of their collected writings in systematics. And so here is Voss and this tremendous friendship that he has with these men who are systematicians. And there is that sense in which I think, and this is where Dick Gaffin has just been so wonderful also, Dick following all of these guys and being the heir to all of these, in that uh, the Reformed world, you should never see systematics and biblical theology as in opposition to one another. They work hand in glove. And that's what Voss was so passionate about uh, putting before the church, was that you're dealing just with different methodologies. When you're dealing with systematic theology, you're dealing with that which is a finished product, and it's logical in organization. When you're dealing with biblical theology, you're dealing with something that's linear, something that's historical. And so the two are not to be seen as, uh, as enemies of one another, but actually, uh, really, what we're striving for is seeing the union of the two, and then as the Lord, uh, you know, through this, that we might be enhanced in our knowledge of our God, that we might glorify him in all that we do. Now, in saying that, one of the key breakthroughs that Voss makes is that he just hammers home the point that scripture is not a dogmatic handbook. It's a book of dramatic interest. In other words, it's covenantal. It's, it's redemptive historical. And so he wants to get that correct and then to go to work on these two disciplines of systematics and, and biblical theology. That's fascinating. And, and, and as we've seen in recent years, he himself was concerned with the methodology of systematic theology. Oh yeah, right. What was you know, what's the background to that to his to his systematic theology? What, can you can you fill us in a little bit on on how sure. that came about? Well, he was a prodigy. Uh, first, I should say that uh, he grew up in a home. His father was one of the leading Christian reform ministers in the Netherlands and then in America in the 19th century. Very devout. Uh, uh, very uh, influential in his own right. And uh, so he was catechized from a youth, but he had incredible linguistic gifts. So basically, by the time he's a teenager, he has seven languages mastered. And uh, he comes over with his father and the family to Grand Rapids, where his father accepts a call to the largest Christian reform congregation in North America. And Voss has to make a decision about where to go to school. He would love to go to the Free University of Amsterdam with Abraham, uh, with Kuiper, but ends up staying at home. He is there, uh, in, enrolls in the classes, and it's apparent, I would say probably from the first week, he knows more than the instructor. And they have an issue on their hand in that what are they going to do with this young man? So that basically by Christmas of that, of Two and a half months in, they realize they have to graduate him, and he really should become the professor at this school. So by the end of the first year, they give him, uh, they basically assign him to be the assistant professor. And he ends up the next year just making sure that he hears the classes that are being taught to the rest of the students. But he then wants to, to further his education. He really wants to get a PhD. He goes to Princeton, 
because he wants to be in the greatest English-speaking Reformed seminary in the world. He goes there. He actually gets admitted, and they allow him, because of his incredible linguistic gifts, to bypass his first year. So he went through the previous school, which was a six-year school, in two years. He then goes through Princeton, a three-year school, in two years. He then goes to Europe, goes to the University of Berlin. He gets over there. He has finished one year, and Abraham Kuyper offers him the position of Old Testament at the Free University of Amsterdam. This gets long-winded way to get to your question, back to your question. Voss would love to teach there. It's an incredible offer. He's really only had, think of it, he's really only had five years of study, and uh, he's 24 years old, and Abraham Kuyper's offering him a session, but Voss does not want to disappoint his parents, and his parents want him to come back home and to really take over the, uh, the leadership of the theological school of, at Grand Rapids, which we now know as Calvin College and Seminary. That's basically what we're talking about uh, in the theological school. He accepts. Now, because he is so far advanced over the, uh, the main professor and over the other assistants, he has to take on everything. So in his first year of teaching there, he teaches 25 hours a week, which is, I don't know how he did it. But in doing so, he realized that he needed to teach them systematics, and that was the very first thing on the list. Um, that, and he, had to, he developed a Greek grammar. Those were the two main things that he had to develop. So he ends up writing uh, a systematics in Dutch, 1,892 handwritten Dutch pages that he would teach these students. And it is incredible. It's been uh, translated into English through the great efforts of Dick Gaffin in this last uh, decade in a, a, his team of translators. And we're now reaping the fruit of, of having that. But what's interesting is um, from 1885 to 1894, his confidant, his best friend, uh, is Herman Bobbick. And by this time, Herman Bobbick was a professor of dogmatics at Compton. Uh, uh, the school in Compton, where both Bovik's father and Voss's fathers were, were so instrumental. And Bovik was writing his own dogmatics at the time. So the question becomes, were these two going back and forth in their correspondence and all the personal time that they were spending there? Basically, what was happening between nine, uh, 1885 and 1888, Voss was spending his summers with Bovik. That's what he was doing in the summers. And uh, they were talking theology. And then Voss makes the decision. He's not going to take the free. He's not going to get a comp in where Bobbick wanted him to go. He's going to come back home. And he writes the dogmatics. And so the question really for modern scholars, and I think it's someone's going to write a great thesis, is they really need to, to compare the four volumes of Bobbing's dogmatics with the five volumes of Voss's dogmatics written virtually at the same time and see what is the similarities and what are the differences between those two works. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And I love that he wrote a Greek grammar in the middle of all that. Yeah. 
just cause. <laughs> I know. Can I follow up on that? It's such a fascinating period of his life and I've got a couple of questions about it. Being a linguist, how is it that we, uh, th that he wrote this out longhand in Dutch and we had to wait until what, the last 10 years, right? To have it translated, reform dogmatics to be translated into English. Yeah, that was a fascinating part of the book in regard to the lit literacy of the students at the theological school was so poor. They only had, they only spoke Dutch in Grand Rapids at the school and in the little Christian reform ghetto they were in. And Voss very much was trying to bring up the, the, the literacy of what they were doing. And so he was sort of, he had, I, I think that, uh, in that environment, he, it, it had to be Dutch. So what happened was in 1896, there was a mimeograph handwritten uh, edition. In 1910, it got typeset. Now, what would happen was that the great theologians that we love that were Dutch speakers, like Louis Burkhoff or, or Canius Fantel or Dick Gaffin, who learned Dutch, they all had this at their fingertips when they did their work in regard to, to Voss. And um, my guess is, and I wish I would have been able to, uh, been, to, to explore this, my guess is Herman Ritterboss had this also uh, in light of uh, an episode um, in the 1970s in which at Calvin College, Ritterboss was in America and was being honored. And he found out that Voss's daughter, Marianne Radius, who was a part of the classics department there, was at this event and Ritterboss actually sought her out because he wanted to go let her know how much her father had meant to him in his, his theology. But in regard to why it took so long, it was difficult, really difficult to translate in English. Dick Gaffin, uh, Dick retired in uh, 2008 from Westminster Seminary he really spent most of the next decade working on this. And the idiom was the thing that was really difficult. He was, and I love, we're so indebted to Dick Gaffin. He was not content with just letting the, um, having any old translation. He wanted to get the idiom right. And that was difficult with Boss's writings. Boss has a certain vocabulary that is high level. And Dick used to tell me that every single year he would assign Voss. And every single year a student would come up thinking they were the first one who had ever uh, had uh, told him this, but he, they would come up and say, when is Voss going to be translated into English? Because they just struggled so mightily with, with what they had before them. It's uh, interesting. I don't know if the story is about Dick Gaffin's humility or about uh, how important Voss is, but... Uh, he constantly gets asked to publish his stuff on Acts and Romans and, and his, his Christology stuff. And his response to me at least was, well, I might get to that, but I need to do more important things first, which is to get Voss out to this generation. Um, so, I mean, he dedicated so many years of his life uh, uh, to that. Um, I, I have a follow-up question about kind of Voss's personality. It just struck me a couple of times as you were talking, Danny, that he, uh, that you mentioned just how formative his relationships were with with other people. You know, and thinking about it on my own life, some of the kind of biggest moments were not, say, finding a gym in a book, but 
talking about that with other people, you know, by the fire or, or, or whatever, or what have you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like his relationships, his, his collegiality, the partnerships that he had and, and how that might've formed him as a professor and, and pastor? Yeah. He was known for being so tenderhearted, um, just very gracious. He was unyielding in conviction, but really tenderhearted. And you could hear that in his prayers and uh, in his personal relationships. It was very evident how much people loved him. Now, one of his habits, his entire adult life, was to walk. And so he took a, a noon walk and he took an evening walk and he walked his dogs. And his noon walk, for almost 30 years was with B.B. Warfield. Whenever he was in Princeton, they would be the two walking at noon. And then others would often walk with him in, in the evening. And I think it's, that's how those relationships really got developed. You would go on a walk. And I really uh, believe that that was something that um, Murray carried on with the Murray Mile John Murray around Westminster Seminary, where that's really where the students got to know Murray. And I think that really, that did make an impact, I believe, with those men who studied under Voss and then became professors in that they wanted to develop also a relationship with, with the students uh, in that, let's say, for instance, you could read Van Til and you could read Voss the same way, and they could be so fierce in print because they're, they're, they're defending the, the faith, they're defending supernaturalism over against the rationalistic aspects that were invading Christianity. And so they, they, they are standing by the self-attesting Christ of Scripture. And then you're thinking, as you go for a walk with them, they're going to be the same way. And, other, and what they are is they're so tender-hearted in asking you about how your life's going, and, and really concerned about placing you first. And I think that that's how um, the sense you get from reading the correspondence and from the testimonies. You, you mentioned uh, uh, a lot of his, uh, uh, and, you, and you described a lot about his interactions with the Dutch theologians in the Netherlands, but uh, his entire uh, teaching career more or less was, was here in the U.S. Uh, what, what was Voss's thoughts about the church, the, the American church scene, the, the, the Dutch church? I mean, he was... Uh, here in the United States during a, a rather unique time in terms of the modernist fundamentalist discussions. Well, he may have been just a bit early, but he was right in the midst of a lot of the, uh, a lot of liberalism that was starting to make its way into the church. Uh, what was his thoughts about the church? Yeah, that's a big question. When he got to Princeton in the 1880s, he was, I think, uh, uh, stunned by how lacking in theological interest the church, the American church was. He had been up in Grand Rapids, he had been isolated, and it was more Arminian, and it was less confessional than he ever realized. And I think that that really stunned him, but he also at the same time was very encouraged by certain individuals. I think that B.B. Warfield, he was so thankful uh, for Warfield. As Voss was graduating from Princeton, that's when Warfield was really coming, making the move from Western Seminary to Princeton and coming in. I actually think that Warfield probably had correspondence with, with Voss, although we don't have any record, but because Voss ended up at Berlin, and there's, there's uh, 
uh, uh, you know, Warfield, I think, probably was influential in that uh, at, at the beginning. But William Henry Green made a tremendous impact upon um, Boss. Uh, Francis Patton also. These were the great defenders of orthodoxy. And by the 1890s, uh, these men really turned to Gerhardus Boss to fight Charles Augustus Briggs in print. So they were doing it in the courts of the church, particularly Green and Patton, and Foss was doing it in print. And so Foss, then after Green died in, in 1900, Foss is really the Presbyterian at Princeton who fought against the confessional revision of 1903. And that part was one of the most rewarding parts of the whole book when I was researching it. I knew I had I knew that he had done that, but I didn't know the depths that he had done it. In regard to, he was really the one that was uh, defending uh, the classic doctrines of election and what it means in regard to preserving the biblical doctrine of the love of God over against the confessional revisions that wanted to lessen the Calvinism of the Westminster Standards and to make things, quote, more fair. And uh, he fought that battle heroically, lost. And what happened was the, the, the confession got revised, and immediately thereafter, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church joined the mainline church. And there was a series of events that led up to what the Presbyterian controversy. And, and in that, he also uh, grew very close to J. Gresson Machen. But I believe that he was firmly with Machen in the stand. And he was so thankful for the defense uh, that was taking place, but he was no fan of fundamentalism whatsoever. It was the whole counsel of God that he was interested in in this defense. But he, he seemed wearied also to me. I think World War I devastated him. And uh, so he was always in the background after World War I and letting Machen and others be in the foreground. Uh, but it's 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 a very you know complex question in regard to what he thought and what he did. Yeah, one of the um, you know one of the obvious intriguing questions in in Voss's, uh life in in terms of the church is is of course related to the uh, uh, the beginnings of the OPC and uh, Westminster and the fact that uh, Voss did not uh, leave Princeton. Uh, to join Westminster when it was uh, when it started, uh, nor did he uh, leave the Northern Presbyterian Church to start uh, when the OPC got started. Now I know he was uh, uh, feeling a sense of his mortality, uh, although he did live uh, quite a, a several uh, quite a long time even after that. So, and, and you kind of help you know in, in the Lord's divine providence. Of course, we can only speculate uh, on what could have happened, but in the Lord's divine providence, it all worked out the way that it did. But had Boss been there. Uh, you kind of wonder how things uh, how things may have changed. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on first uh, what uh, what may have uh, discouraged Boss from leaving and and joining uh, Machen and the OP and uh, and the forming of Westminster and 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 I guess what I'm really interested in is your your evaluation of it. Do you think you made a mistake? Oh yeah. Well, it's fascinating in that you need to parallel in some respects what happened in the 19th century with what happens in the 20th century. So in the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper starts the Free University in, in 1880. And in 1886, 
Kuiper establishes, helps start a new denomination, Delante. And then in 1892, the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands. And Foss basically has an invitation at, for each one of these to join. He has a repeated invitation to be in, at, uh, at the Free University of Amsterdam, which he declines. And if he would have done that, he undoubtedly would have joined uh, Kuiper's church. And yet he declines both, both of those. So you move into the 20th century, and you have Machen, who in 1929 starts Westminster Seminary, and in 1936 starts what we now know as, as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Machen, just like Kuiper, very much wanted Foss to be a part of the faculty at Westminster Seminary, and Foss ends up declining, and then Foss does not join the uh, OPC when it's formed in 1936. In regard to the first, in regard to the Westminster Seminary, his health was horrible, and his uh, financial situation was not good. And he was going to lose his pension if he left. He also, there might have been a thought that uh, in regard to, he, he could still do good at Princeton. I believe he made a mistake. It's easy for me to say in retrospect, I believe he made a mistake. Nebby Stonehouse believed he made a mistake. They were devastated that he didn't come. But he, his health was very poor. The more fascinating thing to me is regard to the ecclesiology, or not fascinating, but it's, it's all of his children and his wife left the mainline church. So his children either joined the Christian Reformed Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or the RPCNA, and his wife joined the RPCNA. He was the only member of his immediate family that stayed in the PCUSA. So that's the one that's fascinating to me, is why he didn't move with the rest of his family in regard to his membership. The question, you just raised a couple of points that just have me curious. The influence of World War I on him, sort of psychologically, there's that piece. And the question of his, you know, his relationship with his family members and their decisions to go and the reformed kind of continental reform direction him saying in the presbyterian church it raises this question that i'm always fascinated by with these with, with biographies and and that is I, I guess voss the man you talked about his friendships how would you describe him if you I, I know you're you're an armchair psycholo- psychologist uh, how would you describe how would you profile him as a person is he was he given to melancholy thoughts kind of thing i mean how um, how would you describe you know, the personality behind the theologian. Yeah, I would say a poet in melancholy is the exact word. Mm. Very, very much a frail. He was also physically frail, but he was very melancholy and his poetry is often dark. Mm. And uh, in regard to World War One, I, I do think it, it just broke his heart. And part of it was he saw it coming in regard to how spiritually the church in Europe had really lost a living hope in how decadent it had become. And in that regard, in thinking of his homeland, uh, even though the Netherlands stayed neutral during uh, World War I, it was very obvious that the Netherlands were inclined towards the Kaiser. Uh, Abraham Kuyper was very good friends with uh, 
with the Kaiser uh, Wilhelm. And uh, I think Bavinck was also sympathetic towards the Kaiser. So let's say you're at Princeton and think of F. Scott Fitzgerald, because F. Scott Fitzgerald is on the scene, you know, we'll write about this later during these times. And if you were a German speaking professor in 1917 at Princeton, even if you're in the seminary, it's very much uh, a, a, a hardship. And so he not only, I think, was so his heartbroken about what was happening and the, the great loss of life and the fact that the church uh, was so in such bad uh, shape. And you think in re regard to Karl Barth came to the same conclusion during World War I, but Karl Barth, in regard to seeing the liberalism and uh, he was awakened from his dogmatic slumbers, he had a different solution than Voss did. But both of them, in regard to what the, the church was like there, and so Voss then, uh, uh, in the attendance in his classes, this totally dropped. Think of it in regard to you all teach. Uh, uh, if, 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 if suddenly, because of your nationality, no one wanted to take your class. And so that was all happening. And I do think it made him very melancholy. He had really bad teeth and uh, really bad uh, stomach. And so he would be up at night where he couldn't sleep and he would be writing his poetry. Um, pacing around writing his poetry and so uh, that was what he turned to uh, but uh, but again um, he did have this great hope in the Lord and that melancholy turned to resurrection hope and it does come through in his uh, writings on the book of Jeremiah he did turn to Jeremiah I think in a, a sense of somewhat semi-autobiographical in looking at there and realizing that the 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 scriptures are so wonderful. Both the Psalms and Jeremiah speak to lament and to the, the, the heart. And yet the, at, at the gospel does break through in those, in the, in, you know, it's like the, it's like in the Psalm 30 sense, the, 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 uh, the, the rain coming or the, the light coming after the darkness. It was fascinating to come across in your writing, the uh, note that his wife, Catherine, yeah was the author of the Child's Story Bible, which so many of us grew up with, and I had never made that connection before. Can you give us a little window into what brought that about and what insight it gives us about their family life and her oh, accomplishments yeah. as well? Yeah, she, became, she sold more books than he ever did. I mean, her book uh, has sold hundreds of thousands of copies and so thankful for it. What they would do is they had purchased a summer home in Williamsport, uh, Pennsylvania, Roaring Branch. And, and during the summer, uh, they had to walk to the, uh, the post office to get their mail or walk to the local Methodist church, the only church in, in town. And what they would do is they would organize, organize their summer days around that in, in having them meals with their children in which Voss would read a scripture and he would pray, but then he would turn it over to his wife to tell the story. And she, cause she had not found any um, really Bible uh, story books that she really liked. And it became apparent over the years as their children were growing up that she was doing a great job. And, and it became, you know, and at a certain point, you know, the thought of collecting them together 
and putting them into a book and she worked and, and she was very diligent about it so in other words by the time they were published in the uh, in 1935, 36, she had worked on them for like 20 years. And, uh, and they were just, uh, and she had gifts. She was a librarian, an excellent student, and uh, was able to, to, to craft them together. And the family, in that sense, was uh, you see the value and the, the, the wisdom of catechizing in regard to a, a, a family in which this was part of their, the rhythm of their life, in that uh, reading scripture, praying, and catechizing, and telling Bible stories was an everyday occurrence uh, for this family. And, and so we are left with this gift of, uh, of her books, and also then her daughter's books. Marianne Radius ended up writing her own children's stories, they're wonderful. Erdman's published them in the 1960s. So it's really quite a set of children's Bible stories from Catherine and Mary Ann. It's a great, I, just to plug that, the story Bible, it's, it's such a great resource. I, I was surprised when I first picked it up in, in college that, um, you know, she does not ignore the kind of hard stories. It's, it's not just a yeah, you know, so, sort of the cute stories in the Bible fit for flannel graph. It's 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 substantive and weighty, um, without being heady and 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 esoteric. It's a it's a great. I, I found answers in the those stories in her explanations that I didn't find anywhere else. It's a good. It's a good resource for the church. Needs better pictures. Yes, totally agree with the better pictures, better art. Hey, Danny, the. Um... Uh, in a sense, you know, Voss has had such a, a huge influence both during his life, especially amongst the, uh, uh, some of the early uh, Westminster Seminary faculty, as you mentioned, and, and he has also had an influence somewhat through his students. You know, his writings alone are very difficult to read, and it really requires someone to kind of to teach you Voss's thought in order to appreciate his writings. And and I think you can make a case that in the last maybe 20 years or so, we have seen somewhat of a biblical theology renaissance, uh, one volume biblical theology that are being written, you know, by various different men, uh, Graham Goldsworthy uh, and, and others that has really popularized the method. It may have something to do with some of the postmodernism, sort of the, the abrasive of narrative as a, and the rejection of some of the um, propositional truths that are out there that sort of brought that popularity of biblical theology and thus sort of return to Voss. With some of the um, newer biblical theologies, and, and they really are standing on the shoulders of Voss, whether they cite him or not, I mean, he is the champion of that method. And you don't do biblical theology without reading Voss. I mean, you just cannot do that. Uh, it's not possible. He had that, he just cast that larger shadow. Uh, but how much, uh, is Voss still relevant? You know, I make seminary students read Voss to this day. And, and one caveat I always make as I start each semester and I have students read Voss is just to remind them, you know, this is not going to be easy reading. <laughs> you know, you really need to take your time to, to read Voss. But in light of the uh, plethora of new biblical theologies that are there, have they, I, I don't, uh, have they replaced Voss? Uh, uh, is, he, is, he, is he someone that we should continue to read? Yeah, I believe he's someone that has great value still today. Dick Gaffin 
is the great champion of Voss. And I think that he has really helped in regard to um, understanding why Voss is still, I think, someone we should turn to. Dick, in the 1980s and 1990s, had to transition to Westminster Seminary to teaching systematic theology. And in doing that, he brought along with him what he had done previously in biblical theology. But in the 1990s, he started to make the case in print in regard to Voss and confessionalism or biblical theology and confessionalism and the Westminster Standards. And in regard to what Voss is doing in biblical theology, we actually see the framework in the Westminster Standards because of the covenantal structure of the standards. Voss himself would say that the Westminster Standards, and this is why I believe he became Presbyterian, the Westminster Standards are the first confessional standards in which the covenant, covenant works, the covenant of grace, is put directly in front and forms the framework for the confession and catechisms. And what that means then for the theology is the consistent outworking. Foss makes the case in his writings that once you uh, admit a federal theology into your system, in other words, if you embrace covenant theology, it cannot be secondary, it cannot be subordinate. It, it, it's actually that which governs the whole. And the Westminster Standards have done that, in Voss's opinion, beautifully. And, and, and to Voss, I would say he also, if you had to pick a, uh, a paragraph that he just adores, it's uh, chapter 7, paragraph 1 of the Confession of Faith in regards to the condescension of God and entering into this covenant with us and what the Lord has done. If you start to see, and this again, this is what Dick Gaffin did, was so great about emphasizing, if you start to see then that this confessionalism and this biblical theology are working together, just like the systematics in biblical theology are working together, then Voss is going to help you in both those areas. Now then you add on to the top of that, he's considered, he was considered by Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, as the greatest exegete Princeton ever had. If you add on top of that, that John Murray thought that he was the greatest exegete of the 20th century. You know, if you add on top of that, this biblical theological exegeting of text, you, you're getting, I mean, as you're, if you're a Reformed theologian or a pastor, I don't know what else you're looking for. You're getting the exegesis, you're getting the confession, and you're getting the systematic theology. And, you, and you're getting also then the tributaries, the branches that run off. So if you are an Old Testament scholar, you read Meredith Klein, you say, oh, he's working under that same type of paradigm, or Dick Gaffin in New Testament, or if you look to apologetics and Cornelius Van Tell, he's doing the same thing. Or if you look to someone like Edmund Clowney, it can be argued that Clowney is so significant in doing falling upon Voss in two areas. Ecclesiology, where, where Clowney's wonderful work on the church in the Old Testament and New Testament uh, really is built upon Vossian uh, contention. But then in regard to preaching, what it means to preach in, in, in Clowney's building upon that. So 
obviously I'm in the bag for Voss. I'm not a neutral observer here. I still think he has tremendous value. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write the book is I wanted to help people not to be scared. I do believe the great entrance into Voss is reading Grace and Glory. I, I still believe that. That is the number one thing you should read first. Read Grace and Glory before you read the other stuff. Uh, but uh, it, he's getting at uh, the covenant. And what it means to be made in the image of God and to have God uh, to enter into this covenant and what it means in which this relationship takes place in which Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Absolutely true. In fact, that's uh, it does answer a question that I did have. It, you know, the title of your book was uh, Gerhardus Voss, Reformed Biblical Theologian and, and Confessional Presbyterian. It was the confessional uh, aspect because you don't necessarily, those who are familiar with Voss, you don't necessarily think of Voss as confessional, but the way you just put it and the way that he tried to cite or see uh, biblical theology as uh, sort of, in many ways, sort of the foundation of the confessions, discussions on covenant really explains that. And, uh, uh, and I agree with the grace and glory, uh, you know, it, you really see Voss in some sense as, a, as uh, his preaching. And I kind of wonder if that's just, is that, is that typical of Voss as a preacher? Uh, is this just sort of out of the ordinary? But uh, his, his grace and glory stuff is so very different in terms of his biblical theology, which would make perfect sense. But the spirit of it, so much of it is the same. The, uh, the, the melancholy that you mentioned, I can't help but to wonder is what drove him to, to, to so focus on the, on the kingdom, his his rich communion with God and, and to embrace that so wholeheartedly. I'm sorry. I know I have a question coming here. <laughs> no I, I guess my question is you've mentioned uh, the grace and glory sermons, which is great. Of course, I cannot highly recommend enough your, your biography on boss for those who would like to uh, read further. If you had to uh, choose for people who are just getting into boss, uh, where would you say they should start with his writings? Yeah, so let me let me just finish up one thing in, uh, in, in a thought in regard to what we were talking about and then, and then the sermons. So he's raised in the, the Christian Reformed Church, and he loves the Heidelberg Catechism. But the Heidelberg Catechism and the three forms of unity, the covenant is present, but it's not up front. It's always there, but it's not up front. I really think, and I'd never put this in writing anywhere, but I, this is what um, my, my sense is, is that he took the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism in its totality. And in regard to what plays out in the Westminster Standards and that full-fledged covenantal theology, it's almost as if it's an outworking of the first question of the Heidelberg, if you put it in a Westminster framework, particularly at the end of that Heidelberg. Well, first of all, the, that we belong to the Lord, that idea of that, that, that possessing, of the Lord possessing us and we possessing the Lord in the covenant, but also at the end, the reflection of the Lord in our life. It's to be an active reflection. I really think it plays out in all that Voss does. He never leaves that behind, but it's as if he's translating that in um, Presbyterian confessional terms. I believe that if you read the original six sermons of Grace and Glory, that that really is uh, the, the, the great entrance into seeing what he's saying that 
we have entered into a kingdom of redemption and not a school of ethics. But in entering into a kingdom of redemption through the grace of God, your life is changed. And ethically, you do want to serve the Lord and reflect him in this life. But if you start with religion being a kingdom, a, a school of ethics, and Jesus being only a good man and an example, you're never going to get to what the Bible teaches. And that was very important to Boss in that he wanted us to, in our methodology, and we who are teachers, our methodologies should flow from the Bible. And that's what he really was passionate about was that rather than to put an alien methodology upon the Bible, we must allow the Bible to speak for itself because this is the word of God. He was very, uh, he was repetitive in that the same God who's the sovereign creator of heaven and earth is the same sovereign who has revealed himself in his word. And that word is authoritative and true. So it's just this, this uh, utter b belief in the truthfulness of the word of God. And then having that play out in all that we do and all that we live and all that uh, happens to us, that we were put on this earth to glorify and enjoy our God, and we are blessed to do so. That's beautiful. Thank you, Danny, for spending this time with us today to talk about you said you're in the bag for Gearhardus Voss. I think most people on this uh, call here are in the bag for Gearhardus Voss too. And I agree. Come, come for the excellent exegesis and stay for the dramatic, redemptive story. Um, it's, it's just uh, his writing has been so beautiful and influential in all of us and all of our thought. And so, um, we appreciate this time. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thanks for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank you. And to everyone else, we look forward to uh, speaking and being together again in the weeks ahead. Until then, take care. Well, thank you for your time. All right. And, uh, it's been great talking to you. Everybody else, you need to stay on because as you probably saw, I didn't hit the record button until halfway through my intro. So I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I need you to say hi. Uh, but Danny, you're safe. So you hadn't started talking before that happened. So we're good to go. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Danny, thank you. Danny. Thank you so much. Do we want to re-record my OPC joke? I thought it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what OPC joke was that again? About about adding dozens to the OPC. Oh yeah, that's right. That was a good one. Yeah. Forgettable.